it won't all be good and there'll be tough times. And when you have a commitment and a passion to make things work, it is amazing the results and support you get. But you have to do what's called tell the total truth faster. And when you tell the total truth faster to your partner, to yourself, to your colleagues, life works. The problem is we are so scared of being vulnerable. People love you more when you show vulnerability. But people think it's a weakness, not a strength. So when you understand that the more vulnerable you are, the more you share, the more support you'll get. Hello everyone, my name is Julie Masters and welcome to another episode of Inside Influence, in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers or experts in influence or people who've had a sneak peek behind the curtain of a very unique world of influence to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement or a nation. Now, this is the primary question I went into my interview with this week's guests thinking about. What kind of leadership influence actually creates impact? Real impact. You know, as leaders, we can request, we can motivate, we can incentivize, we can reprimand. But what happens when those tools don't work or if they stop working? When we've tried everything that we know and, and the results are still falling way too far short. Or when we've got that sneaking feeling, you know, that sneaking feeling in your gut that maybe it's us rather than them, and that a better leader could possibly get this train back on the track. You know, it's, it's hard to admit those moments, or at least I have found it hard to admit those moments, because it means we have to stretch when we already feel stretched enough. We've got to learn new tools, and hardest of all, we've got to admit to those we're supposed to be inspiring, that in this moment at least, we're as unsure as anybody else. And yet, it's in those moments, according to my next guest, that we have the choice to do something different, to develop tools that are some of the most potent we have available to us as leaders. Now, these tools, these tools we're going to talk about today, these are counterintuitive tools. They involve slowing down, especially when you need results fast. They involve stopping talking, especially when everybody is looking at you for answers. They involve really listening to our teams and considering their purpose in going to work, as opposed to the purpose that we want them to have in that moment. They involve trusting people implicitly until proven otherwise, and then telling the truth fast when things aren't working. Essentially, they involve unlearning everything that we think we know or have learnt as leaders. My guest today is the entertaining and unreservedly direct Nigel Reisner. Nigel is a globally recognized specialist in company turnarounds and the author of the amazing book, The Impact Code. Nigel's journey into leadership began at 21. I don't often go into a backstory of a guest, but Nigel's background gives you some idea as to why he has earned the right to give the tools that he's going to offer today. He began, as I said, at 21 as one of the youngest CEOs of a financial services company in London. He started that company with the total sum of £12.80 in his pocket and went on to lead that company through massive growth, eventually becoming the largest independent brokerage in the country. But of course, that's not the end of that story. The course of true love or true leadership never ran that smooth 
And I also, I can't think of any masterful CEOs or founders that hit the bullseye on the first shot or the second or the third for that matter. Then came the financial crash of the 1980s. And after a chain of events, Nigel found himself making a previously inconceivable choice to drive a minicab in the company Bentley in order to pay the bills. What happened next and the lessons he learnt fire-tested all the tools he now teaches when it comes to helping companies and teams successfully emerge from what would usually be considered near-fatal situations. In today's conversation, Nigel and I go headfirst into the importance of telling the truth quickly and how hard that can be. The art of deep trust until proven otherwise. What it takes to show up intentionally and powerfully as a leader. Why 17 minutes is actually the magic number. I won't go into more detail here, but it's well worth writing down. How to turn feedback into feed forward. That's a simple twist, but it completely changes the outcome. And the vital leadership pivot from coach to commentator. I first heard about Nigel in a Facebook message that arrived one morning from a friend I, I admire very much. And it said, you need to check this guy out. He's interesting. So now I'm saying the same to you. You need to check this guy out. Grab a coffee. Get ready to dive into a world of what it takes to drive leadership impact, especially when the road most travelled disappears. Enjoy my conversation with Nigel Reisner. Nigel Reisner, welcome to the show. Good evening, good morning to you, and how are we? We are good. You're coming coming into the show live from London today, having just come out of a snow blizzard. I've had a couple of guests who have just come out of snow blizzards. Seems to be a thing at the moment. Look, it could be worse. We're all breathing, we're all eating, and there's some money on the table. So how bad can it be? <laughs> Put like that, that is very true. Very true. I'm going to kick off the, the way that I usually kick off, which is to ask you the question whether you consider yourself to be an introvert or an extrovert for the reason that, and especially I think in the context of this conversation, a lot of people assume that you need to be an extrovert in order to be a great leader and especially to stand up when things aren't great and to make an impact. And I'm really curious as to which camp you think you fall into. Ironically, I appear an extrovert, but I'm very happy doing my own stuff and working on my own as an introvert. But obviously when you're on stage and when you're running a business, you need to be an extrovert so that people feel comfortable. Doesn't always mean that's the right answer, but people feel more comfortable when they think they have an extrovert leader as a boss. I haven't heard that perspective before. So you think that people feel more comfortable is it a sense of certainty? Is it a sense of, you know, the captain of the ship feeling like they've got the gravitas to get us through choppy waters? And that's the key thing. People need to feel certain and feel safe that when stuff happens, someone out there has a voice. Even though normally most extrovert, extroverts have an introvert partner who's probably doing a lot of the paddling under the surface, a bit like a duck. And so, but you believe that an introvert can have that sense of gravitas. You just need to be able to step up and own your voice when the time comes. You need to have the willingness to do that. And that's the key thing. You don't have to have a loud voice, 
but you do need to make your voice heard when times are needed and in times of real strife. Well, let's kick off on that topic. Let's start by talking about strife, because that's specifically why I asked you onto the show today, to talk about how to lead under fire, um, how to lead when it counts, how to lead when the going isn't good. So to give us a, a little bit of background, let's start the conversation at a moment of your life where I'm guessing you felt at one of your highest levels of strife, and that's when you were driving a cab, when you had found yourself in a position where you needed to drive a cab. Can you give me a bit of background on that? So if I go back a couple of years beforehand, so I started a finance company at 21 years old, and I made an absolute fortune very, very quickly in the city of London. I was a one of the youngest CEOs at 25 years old. And in the late 80s, when everything was going well, a lot of money was invested and I had a whole team of people and I had 75 people with five offices and things were going really well. And I bought my partner out and then we had venture capital into my business. And when you don't understand what venture capital is and you don't understand that venture capitalists only have one reason for being, and that's an exit route. And I didn't understand all that because I'd never been trained in all that. When we lost literally millions overnight and I asked for a pay rise and they said no, understandably, I then had to find a way of earning more money very quickly. And as a side to this, my child had been born a year earlier who had mild cerebral palsy. My physiotherapy bills were a lot of money and I had to earn money very quickly. And the only thing I could do was to use the vehicle that was situated outside my house, which happened to be a Bentley. And I thought, I wonder what I could do to earn money. And the only thing I could do very quickly was to become a minicab driver. Now, in the UK, to be a minicab driver, you didn't have to be licensed. And I had to find a company that would allow me to drive my Bentley without being licensed and that I could work unbelievably hard and earn a considerable amount of cash very quickly. And I share that story in the sense of when things are tough, you have a choice to be part of the BMW club which is the bitching, moaning and whining people, or do something about it. And the only thing I could do really quickly to earn more money was to become a driver at night. So I would drive from 7pm at night till 2 in the morning for four nights every week. And then on a Friday night, work all the way through the night, because that was a busy night with pubs and bars, etc. And for seven months, that's what I did to get myself out of the trouble that I was in. And so during the day, were you trying to get the company back on its feet or had it gone down at that point? It wasn't that I was trying to get it back on its feet. I had a job to do and I was employed by my board, but I wasn't earning enough money with mortgage rates that went through the roof in the late 80s, early 90s and having a child with mild cerebral palsy and the, and the list went on that I needed to earn more money. And my board, having lost millions, didn't want to pay more money. So you have a choice when things aren't right. You can moan or get off your ass and do something about it, which is what I chose to do. And then came the hardest decision of my life, which is when I had to resign from my own business to start all over again. And I walked out of my own company with one month's money and started all over again from home. So talk me through that. How did you get to a position? Because I think for... A lot of business owners or anybody that's ever started something, you know, sometimes you've got to break things. 
in order to take in order to take the next leap forwards and it's not an easy thing to do and 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 you're you're right in so many ways there because julie at some point when you know it's not working you can bury your head in the sand and you can pray and you can dream and you can have mastermind teams and you can do all the stuff that everyone's been taught about but at some point you have to physically say enough is enough this is never going to turn around and there are too many people who work on the dream for years and years and years. And as much as I was ambitious and I thought I could turn it around, I knew I was never, ever going to be able to get to the position I needed to be in. unless I left my own business, walked away from everything that I'd built up and started all over again with just one member of staff instead of 70 staff. And how did you know? Because I've got, got, you know, I've had a lot of friends in that position. You know, I know a lot of people who run what would seem from the outside to be extremely successful enterprises. And for one reason or another, it doesn't it doesn't even usually mean that the business isn't doing well. But for one reason or another, in order for them to create what they want to create, in order for them to start the next chapter on the trajectory that they're hoping for, or just because they've had a change in circumstance, they have to break the very thing that they gave birth to. And it's a very difficult process, but there's usually a moment I have found in sitting and listening over many cups of tea. There's usually a moment where you know, a moment where it's that that switch gets flicked where you kind of go, I think this is the end now. I think I've reached my end. And and really we knew it was the end months and months and months before, but you're determined to see if you can salvage something. And there's a phrase that says sometimes you have to say no to the good. So you can say yes to the great. And I had to make this decision that was painful. I had two young children to say, you know what? I can do better, but I've got to start all over again. And I can't have all this baggage with me and all this other outside pressure. And sometimes it might be getting divorced. Sometimes it might be leaving family. You cannot continue holding negativity in your heart for as long as I did without something giving up. And I left literally with one month's money and started all over again from at home. And the freedom of not having those what I call psychic vampires around me and all these internal meetings just to focus on what I really wanted to do. And the freedom literally within two months was life changing. I, I came up with this phrase once while I was while I was talking to it was actually a young girl at, a, at an event and she had started a charity and again, very successful charity had built it up from just her wanting to make a difference um, to communities, to rural communities in Africa. And had, it had become, you know, a multi-million dollar enterprise and helped thousands and thousands of people. And it was by all, you know, checks and measures, it was going fantastically well. It had a board and she was just at this stage of it dying on the inside for the, for all the reasons, you know, it had become a political beast for her to manage. She felt really far removed from the passion with which she started. And we were talking and I remember saying to her, at some point you've got to, you've got to just hit this point where you have to let it burn, where you've got to stop putting out the fires and you've got to stand back and let it burn and see what emerges. Like just take your hands off it for a second and let it go let it go down not literally but let let all the shit go down and then see what emerges when you stop holding on to it so tightly and that phrase of just letting it burn out and recreating something there's there's always been a phrase that says 
that if you dropped a thousand self-made millionaires somewhere in the world, within two years, 98% of them would have recreated their wealth because they had an inner burn, they had an inner self-belief. People who are gifted money and people who are lottery winners, you find that 98% of them lose their money within two years. Mm, that's interesting because in order to make it, A, you need to have fallen on your butt so many times that you know the minefields to avoid and you also know that you've got the grit to do it. You've kind of learnt the rules of the game in a way, the hard way. And it's hard and sometimes you just have to say enough is enough. You know, and I come from a background where I have to say sometimes shalom, enough, this is it. But it's tough because a lot of people surrounding you have a vested interest in your life not working and they quite like seeing you fail and they quite like seeing you not succeed. So if you were to walk out and start all over again, the people who don't have the courage to do that feel very scared. So you find people a bit like lobsters. They'll hold you back in the hot water because they don't want you to be free. The good side is once you're free and you've had that experience, the growth and development from it is just amazing because you now know what doesn't work very quickly. So you don't allow yourself to be put in that position again. I say from my own experience, and we're going you know, slightly off topic with this, but I think it's important because there's a, there's a lot of people that talk how to make it and there's not enough people who talk about how to break it. Um, from my own experience with that, there's a humility that comes with this point in time, this moment, the shalom, the let it burn, whenever you reach my enough is enough. Um, there's a humility that comes with that because you have to stand still, sit down, fall on your face, whatever it takes, and admit for a second that you don't have the answers, that you don't know what's going to happen, that you can't fix it, um, that you have no control, and you're just going to have to simply see how this plays out and when it calms down and when the flames subside and the noise quietens, then you hope that new passion and inspiration will hit you, but you don't know. You just hope that it will. And there's such a humility that comes because I think as a leader, you know, you can very much buy into your own PR where, you know, I have all the answers. There's nothing I can't fix. Um, you know, there's there's n I am limitless. I will work every hour given me. I will solve every problem. I have a strategy for everything. I'll put in my own money if I need to. Um, to come from that limitless place to this almost I have hit my limit place is an incredibly humbling exercise i found it to be and if we go one stage further it's all about trust and when you trust yourself enough that you know that you can make it and when you trust yourself enough that your family will support your decision and when you trust the people around you that they will love you no matter what then freedom occurs yeah and isn't that our biggest fear that those we love will consider us to be a failure and I've been married now 33 years, but happily four. But I've been married <laughs> for years. And, you know, that's part of the commitment that it won't all be good and it won't always be smelling roses and there'll be tough times. And when you have a commitment and a passion to make things work, it is amazing the results and support you get. But you have to do what's called, and it's a phrase that I use a lot, to tell the total truth faster. And when you tell the total truth faster to your partner, to yourself, to your colleagues, life works. The problem is we are so scared of being vulnerable and showing vulnerability 
the great leaders that understand what vulnerability is, people love you more when you show vulnerability. But people think it's a weakness, not a strength. So when you understand that the more vulnerable you are, the more you share, the more support you'll get. Let's dive into some of, you know, we're talking about leadership in a wider context now, but let's dive into some of the things that work when you're in the fire. You quoted, I think it's Virginia Satir, who said, we all have four basic needs to be attended to, to be listened to, to be touched and to be mutually respected. Now, when I read that, you were saying it in a leadership context, when when I read that, I remember thinking, it's a big ask. When you feel like you're on your knees and you've got no more energy and you've got nothing left to give and you're struggling, you don't have any of the answers. Have you got any guidance on that? How do you how do you attend to those four basic needs of others in moments where you don't feel like you've got anything left to give? So I was coaching today and this question came up and I asked the person I was coaching, do you have any idea why people come to work? And I said, I'm going to help you out here by telling you that money is not the answer. And I'll do a gamble and a bet with you to see if you're if you understand why your team come to work. Because as a leader, you've got to know why your people come to work and you need to know why you come to work. And 99 percent of leaders who I work with have no idea why their people commit to coming to work. So the guy I was with today, I offered him a hundred thousand pounds if he got the answer right. And all he had to do was give me a hundred pounds if he was wrong. Now he's worked with his team for 12 years and he said, I know why they come to work. I said, well, what we're going to do is you're going to write down the reasons why you think they come to work. And if you get it all right, I will give you a hundred thousand pounds right now. But if you get it wrong, you've got to give me a hundred pounds, but I will demand the money. So I then said to him, I'm going to go one stage further. There are reasons why your team come to work. And I just want to know what the top five personal reasons are. And then he panicked. So I then said to him, the only reason why people come to work is to get their personal needs met. That's why people come to work. But the tragedy is in leadership. We don't know what their personal needs are. And we often don't know what our personal needs are. And if you don't know what your personal needs are, and you don't know what your team's personal needs are, how do you motivate them when things aren't going well? Because when things are going really well, you can offer them more money. You can offer them different incentives. You can offer them a trip to Barbados. But when things aren't going well and there's not loads of money, how are you going to motivate your team? How are you going to motivate yourself? Do you do you find that often people don't know the re- what their personal needs are? That the, They're not able to articulate those? 99% of people don't know their own personal reasons mm. why they come. They think it's money. Money is not the reason. So how do you find those? How do you find those? By, ask, by really asking what's key and important for you. One of the things that's really important to me as a speaker and as a coach, one of my personal needs is Diet Coke. And when I'm given Diet Coke and when I go on stage and there's two cans of Diet Coke, how do you think I feel when that's on stage? I would imagine that you would feel a heard. Yep, that's a key word. So there's the first one. I've been heard. And resourced. And I've been resourced, respected and nourished. Okay, and that's just on something very basic as Diet Coke. I want to make sure that I'm trusted by the organisers to do my stuff. And I haven't had to send my slides in advance because I don't know quite what I'm going to say. So now I'm trusted 
and I'm heard and the money's nice. But if I'm not trusted, I'm not heard, no amount of money is going to be enough for me. So what should you what should you never do as a leader? Assume you know what they want. Because I said, you know, if you offer me diet, if you offer me diet Pepsi and you offer me to go to a cheese and wine party, I don't drink. I don't eat cheese. I hate diet Pepsi. OK. I feel violated that you'd invite me to a cheese and wine party. I won speaker of the year a couple of years ago from a, a major organization. And I got sent a crate of Diet Coke with my initials on the Diet Coke. Now, it seems ridiculous, but sending me a bottle of champagne is nuts because I don't like alcohol. And all I think is you haven't listened to me for the last 10 years. I mean, isn't that just one of the most fundamental listening to you speak now? One of the most fundamental keys of, of influence, especially as a leader, is the ability to be able to make somebody else feel heard. Not you feel, not you be heard, but somebody else feel heard. And everyone will tell you that when you share a personal story and then three days later, somebody sends you a postcard or somebody sends your children a note based on something you've shared, life works. But going back to one of the original questions, when life is not working and money is not there, if you can sort out your team's personal needs and you can support them a little bit closer to getting their personal goals met, once things get better, they will work unbelievably well for you. The problem is when there's no money and then you're just trying to promote people with money and then there isn't money, people just feel violated. So I spend my life working with CEOs and senior teams in getting people in the room, being heard, being given something that they feel is valuable to them. And when I teach communication skills, I often say people like me need lots of hugs, lots of acknowledgement but there are other people who need a letter they need a, a pdf document they need a team meeting they need a group hug it's about people's personal needs and in their style not your style you've talked a lot about being in the room when you're in the room be in the room and i think that that ties nicely with what we were just talking about because you can't do any of this stuff and if you're not in the room you you can't hear somebody if you're not in the room you can't Deliver on anybody's personal needs if you're not in the room. Firstly, can you just explain what you mean by that? But secondly, how, do, again, when you've got a thousand, when things are breaking and you've got a thousand things on your mind, and you're thinking about the next place you have to go and a conversation you just had and the ramifications of everything that's going on around you, it's very easy to not be in the room. How do you bring yourself there? Okay, so I, I spoke at a leadership conference yesterday for the ambulance service. Someone, Ironically, we had chief execs of different ambulance trusts from all over the world. And I was the closing speaker yesterday. And my opening line to them was to say, I'm only going to speak for about 42 minutes because I know you're very busy. The bar is waiting. There's lots of things going on in your life. And as good as I think I might be to keep people in the room for longer than 40 minutes is a very long time. So the concept about being in the room is that right now, the only person who matters in my life is you, Julie, because we're doing this interview, just the two of us. I've got a crazy dog outside. My kids are around. Hopefully I'll see them over the weekend. I've got proposals to do. I'm writing another book. And all that stuff is important. But the only person who matters to me is this interview, because that's what I'm doing right now. The problem is people find it very difficult to not be multitasking. They think they need to be on Facebook. They need to be on Twitter. They need to be on LinkedIn. They need to be on their phone. They need to be walking the dog. They need to be doing a proposal. 
The problem is very few people can multitask well. If you go back thousands and thousands of years, the man's job was to hunt. And the woman's job at the time was to look after the family, build the fire and cook the food. And the woman had to listen out for the bears and the wild animals coming. And they would be multitasking all the time. Bring forward 5,000, 10,000, 50,000 years. And we can't multitask the same way. And men are even worse at multitasking because we have a single mind to a single task. So when people are on the phone and they're on their computers and they're writing notes and they're trying to do a Skype call, what happens is our full attention isn't given to anything. So what can we what can we do as leaders? I mean, again, coming back to that point of if you're in a moment in time where things aren't going well, it's the easiest thing in the world to not be to not be present, not be present for your, your team, not be present in meetings, because as far as your brain's concerned, you've, you've got bigger fires. What can we do? What are some other rituals that people can put in place? OK, so every 20 minutes. People need to stop, breathe and look at where they are and think, am I in the room right now? Literally every 20 minutes, they've got to stop. Is that an alarm on your phone? Because you lose track of time otherwise, surely. Well, that would be one of the things. But what you could do is something else is you have an elastic band around your left wrist. And every time you leave the room, you just ping it and it will remind you to get back in the room. I kind of, I kind of like that idea. <laughs> I like and dislike that idea there's something well, i'm sure i'm sure you're going to dislike it masochistic about it well that's the point so what you've got to make a decision right now is to start disciplining yourself that wherever you are in short bursts of time be there until you can get up to 40 minutes i mean generally i don't want to speak to an audience for longer than 40 minutes because it's too long they can't stay in a room that long we have this fear of missing out we need to be on twitter we need to be on linkedin we need to be checking our facebook and we've got to such an extent that people who I used to, let's go back a stage. I used to insist everyone turn their phones off when I spoke at a conference. And then you realise people were in panic because they were thinking about phone calls they were missing. So they weren't in the room because they were worried about their phones. So then I say, I'll tell you what, you can keep your phone on vibrate. And if it does go off, look at your phone, make a decision. Can you do something about it? And if you can't, turn your phone over. But I often will say to an audience, especially if it's a smaller team, does anybody need to do anything in the next 10 minutes that if you could do it now would give you peace of mind for the rest of the hour? Because if there's something you could do in the next 10 minutes, go and do it and come back. And what you find is because you've given people permission to do that, they then don't need to do it. They just think they need to do something. So when you say to people, if there's something that is so mega urgent that has to be done in the next 10 minutes and you can do it in the next 10 minutes, then do it you'll be amazed that just knowing that they had the option to leave means they feel they feel they've been given permission to leave. I very rarely have people leave the meeting, but occasionally I kick someone out when someone says to me, look, I need to have a break in half an hour. I've got this urgent phone call to make. I'll often say, go and do it now. And then they'll often say, it's not that important then. Because you, you know that they won't be present otherwise. Yeah. And, and there's the key thing. So sometimes I'll actually say to CEOs, why are we having a meeting on a Monday morning at nine o'clock when they're eager to come to work and do their stuff? Why don't you just do that at 11 o'clock or 12 o'clock? Think about the timing of meetings. Why are people having meetings when they're having them? And if it's not that important, don't do it then. I think the, the critical thing there is choice. When people feel like they have a choice, they show up. 
because they, in that moment, what you've essentially asked them to do is, I need you in this moment to choose whether you want to be here. And as soon as someone feels like they have a choice, they're not just showing up because somebody told them to or asked them to. As soon as they make that choice, they show up at a different level. And that, that's the whole point. They turn up at a different level. This thing about being in the room probably is the biggest message I teach people. Because when people are in the room and their personal needs are being met, life works. And the reason they're not in the room is because their personal needs aren't being met and they think there's other stuff that's more important. I often say to people, does this work for you for me to share this? So if you think about the timings, what you and I wanted to do this interview, there were a number of times that one of us could make it, but the other couldn't. So even if we'd have said, look, I can maybe spare you 10, 15 minutes. One of us wouldn't have been in the room because there'd been other things going on for each other. So what you want to get is agreement that we're both in the room. And when both parties are in the room, it's amazing the results that occur. How do you get someone's agreement? How do you get their emotional buy-in when, you know, it might not be a topic of conversation they want to have. They might not see the importance of it. But by asking the question, you know, we need to have a conversation about this. This may not be the right time, but it needs to happen. So let's work a time where we're going to get together, but we're going to do it for a short period of time. And when people know that they're being listened to and their needs are being met, they'll buy into the reason why there's a conversation. So I often say to people, I'm only going to share, spend 17 minutes with you. Because if they see value to it, there's no excuse. Most people have got 17 minutes in their life. So if I was doing a pitch meeting to a chief exec, I would often say to them, I just need 17 minutes of your time. 17, why 17? Because I can get enough information across to know whether there's a buying signal in 17 minutes time. And if you're confident and comfortable about what you're selling, within 17 minutes, you'll get the first buying signal. And they'll probably then ask you either to stay or make a follow-up appointment. But if I said, I just need an hour of your time, most people today, that's way too long. So there's a lesson there in terms of if you're trying to pitch somebody, a busy person, 17 minutes, 17 minutes. magic yeah. number, magic number. Yeah. Let's talk about feedback. I want to talk about um, one of the hardest things as, as a leader, and again, especially when things aren't going well, is to to be able to give feedback. Okay, so can I just upset you right now? Yeah, go I, I hate the word feedback, okay? Everybody hates the word feedback, don't they? As soon as someone says to you, can I give you some feedback? Everybody, I don't know a single person whose heart doesn't break. I'm going to give you a new word. Go for it. You're not allowed to use the word feedback for the next 21 days. You're only allowed to use the word feed forward. Feed forward. You see, the minute you hear the word feedback, you know you've done something wrong. And your brain shuts down because it's like, here we go. I'm going to get shat on from a height here. Everything I've ever done wrong is going to get mentioned. Then someone's going to give me 360 degree feedback. Then someone's going to mention that my mother was right. I'll never find a boyfriend or a girlfriend if I bite my nails. And we go through this whole child parent scenario. So when I work with any organization, I say to them, if I think there's some work to be done and I think it's going to add value to our relationship in your life, I'm going to give you some feed forward to make you even better in the future. Would you be up for that? And what do you think the response I get is? Yes. There you go. And I'm going to do it within 17 minutes and you'll see an immediate difference if you follow some of the feed forward. But I'm only sharing it to you because I want to make all of us even better in the future. Wow. Okay. I'm just going to break that down because there was a, there was a lot of good stuff in there and 
I don't want it to get lost. So firstly, again, you tell me if I've if interpreted this right. Firstly, you gave choice again. Would you like yeah. this? So someone has chosen and therefore when the time comes, they will show up completely because there's been choice. Secondly, um, you, they bought into the the objective of the conversation, which is to make everybody better. And rather than to pick up on everybody's mistakes. So a different objective has been brought into. And thirdly, again, you've been very specific. This isn't going to be a long rambling discussion about how I should just step up and do better. This is going to be quick. It's going to be to the point and it's going to be valuable. It's going to be done in 17 minutes. And you've also just saved yourself some time doing that. Well, that's the whole, which means as a leader, you've thought about it and you're going to be inspiring them. So I have another phrase which you're going to love. It's my favorite phrase in leadership. You either inspire people or you fire them. There's no middle ground, okay? You either inspire them or you fire them. So if, you, yeah. if you're not, again, I'll try and interpret that. If you're not able to reach somebody via your communication style or for whatever reason you're not able to reach them to a level where you're able to inspire them, then they're not the right fit for your team. Is that, is that exactly. right? Exactly. And they need to go. So I want to hug the world. I want to inspire as many people as I can. And let's use you and I as an example because we've got male and female energy. We're in Australia. We're in the UK. We've got different skills and qualities. Maybe my style doesn't work. Maybe your style doesn't work. But if between the two of us, we can't inspire them to greatness, we're both not wrong. Then they need to go. But if you're not willing to invest in, in inspiring them, they shouldn't be there. So I want to invest in people. I want to give them the best they can. I want to coach them to success. But after I've spent time, money, effort, energy, and it's still not working, maybe it's time for them to go somewhere else. And that makes no one wrong. It stops, as a leader, stops you beating yourself up. Why? I mean, we've all been there. Why can't I reach that person? You know, I've done everything I know how to do. I just can't seem to reach them. And then the automatic thing there is either I'm wrong or I have to go to the space where they're wrong. Whereas what you're yeah. saying is actually, if I can't reach you, obviously there's not a good fit here. And it may be that I'm, I'm the wrong coach. So my style is different to yours. You know, I'm quite in people's faces. I'm a bit like a rock violent. I don't let go. I know what I'd like to do. And maybe that's too aggressive for some people. So I bring Julie Masters in and you sit down with them. And then you say, look, my approach hasn't worked. Well, the two of us aren't wrong. So let them be a terrorist elsewhere. Let them be a psychic vampire elsewhere. Let them find the fit they need to somewhere else. But we've done the best we can. We're willing to invest, spend time with them to make them even better than they are. And if we can't, then they need to go. So it's about inspiring or firing. But leaving Sleeping Dogs Lie is just a financial disaster for organisations. Again, I think the majority of leaders who have done it for a while will know what happens when you think it'll be okay, I'll deal with it later. Just even that thought, you know how hard that's going to kick you in the ass later. Now, you you had talked about knowing your mode, which I think fits nicely with what you were just saying. Know your mode, coach, player or commentator. You just walk me through those three modes, three leadership roles. Okay, so there's really only two, and I've given you a third one by mistake in a way. So as a team leader, your job is to work with people to coach them to success, but recognize that when you're coaching them, they will be in what I call commentator mode a lot. 
So what is a coach's role really in leadership? It's to coach them to be better in the future. A coach can't change past results. Does that make sense? Yes, it does on the surface. Keep going. Okay. The player is you and I. We play the game of life. And what we do is we play every single day our points. And we have a choice to listen to the coach who wants to make us better in the future or the commentator who tells us what they could have done, would have done, should have done and how their life would have been different if they'd have been playing the points. And if you ever listen to commentary on the radio of any sporting occasion, you will hear them talk a lot about what they would have done. This is what they should have done or the predictions they're making based on past experiences. And all of us have what's called an internal coach and commentator. And it's very hard to listen to the coach and the commentator at the same time because the commentator's voice is much louder. I'll give you an example, Julie. Have you ever been driving your car and you've got lost somewhere? Oh, that's a, anyone that knows me will tell you that's a frequent occurrence. Okay. In the middle of getting lost, do you ever coach yourself to success and say, let me look out the window and see the lovely surroundings. I can see the ocean on the right-hand side. And what a beautiful day to be one of God's servants in the new road to a victory. Or do you go into commentator mode and say, I can't believe I got lost. How stupid am I? I should have read my, I should have got onto ways. I should have listened to my husband. I should have listened to the radio station. Except, and we just beat ourselves up. I think I go the third level of victim there where I blame the GPS, usually. Here we go. And then here, here comes the next thing. So you become part of the BMW club. You go into blaming, bitching, moaning, whining, and all that stuff. Oh, absolutely. But if you were a coach to yourself and you heard what you were saying to yourself, you would snap that out of you because you're not stupid. You just made a stupid mistake. But we beat ourselves up and then we blame ourselves. And then what some people do is they never drive again. They never get they never get married again. They never have a relationship again. They never want to take a risk again. Coaching is about understanding you won't win every point. I'm an ex-professional tennis player. At my absolute best, I never won every point in tennis. And nor does Roger Federer. And so how do you, so when you say you're either a coach, a player or, or a commentator, that's getting clear about what mindset you're in at yeah, the time. Yeah, we're always, we, the only thing we can do is be a player in our lives. And you can't talk about playing, you can just be a player. So we are being ourselves. The problem is there's two voices in our heads. And one is the role of the coach and one is the role of the commentator. And the role of the coach is only to make it better in the future. That's what coaches do in life. We look at where someone is and how do we make them better for the next game. So mentally, you need to stop the commentary. You need to mentally, you need to pull in your inner coach as soon as you hear commentary. Yeah. And, and we all hear commentary. You know, in the middle of this interview, I'm going to be going, you know, what I should have said I have to stop that and say, OK, so the next question you ask, I'll make it shorter, snappier and better instead of beating myself saying I'm the worst radio interviewee in the world. So. If we can do that, we can somehow stop ourselves mentally, learn to recognize commentary when it kicks in and learn to go into coach mode instead. We, you know, we have a relative amount of control over that. Our own minds, you know, said with a small, small amount of, of irony in there, because that's often the thing that we have the least control over. But when we're sat with somebody else, and again, for, as a leader, we've all been in that situation when you're sat with somebody else and it is nonstop, it feels like nonstop commentary. How do you be a coach in those moments? Okay, so you've just said something very interesting. 
Because when we are coaching someone else, we need to recognize they are in coaching commentator mode too. So all the time that you are talking to somebody, they are playing the same game as well. They're listening to the feedback stroke feed forward. They're interpreting what you're saying. And you need to make sure they are in what I call coach mode, that they are listening to you as a conduit for change for the better and not for criticism for the past behaviors. Say that again for me. Okay, so all the time that I'm talking now, you're listening to my words as either a coach or as a commentator. Mm -hmm. And just then, when you didn't quite understand what I said, you had a choice to play as the coach or the commentator. And the coach inside says, I didn't quite hear everything that Nigel said, so let's re-ask him again so I can get it better for the next interview. The commentator inside would have thought, guys, how stupid does Nigel think I am? He said something really eloquently and I didn't hear and I wasn't listening and I wasn't in the room. Okay. And it's a choice how we listen, but I need to know that all the time that I'm talking to you, you're playing that game with me as I'm playing with everyone else. And I need to make sure you're in coach mode. So I'm sharing as much as I can, hoping to make this the best interview I can, but there'll be times I speak too fast so I don't make myself clear. And I need to recognize that there are times you're going to ask me to slow down or repeat what I've said. Because you're in coach mode too. So if I'm sat with, if I'm sat with somebody else, I'm sat with them in a meeting, and I can feel that they're in commentator mode, and it's not feeling particularly productive or the best use of time, or that it's going to get us the solution that we're looking for. Would you literally use that language? Would you literally yeah. say, "I feel like you're in commentator mode right now, and I'd like to move us into coach mode"? Yeah, or I'd say, I'd see the. the 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 actual word that you said, and then we stopped it in a way, was sometimes I feel. So our gut, often in a meeting, is telling us something's not right. And you know that your gut is your second brain. And if we learn to trust our instinct and our gut, I'll know when this interview is going well, and I'll know when I've confused you. And if I know I've confused you, I'm going to say, look, gee, let's just repeat that. Let's just go over that one more time so we're both clear. But you have to have high self-esteem and high confidence to be able to say that to somebody in, a, in making sure they don't feel like I'm accusing you of being stupid. My gut is 99% right that when I'm sharing something on stage and I think I've lost the audience, I will stop and say, I've probably gone too fast on this. I'm just going to share this in a different way because you will feel an energy block sometimes. And I know you understand about energy. And there are times where we communicate with somebody and you just know they're not getting the message. Oh, yeah. It's a, it's a, um, I like getting too woo-woo. It's a, it's a physical sensation when you're in, in connection with somebody and then when it shuts. We can all feel it. I mean, there are, there, are, there are actual tangible cues, you know, when someone sits back, when their eyes glaze a little, when their body language shifts in a defensive way, there's those physical cues. But there's also just that sense of we've just dropped out now. It's like a radio signal drops out. But a lot of the time when it happens, we're scared to say anything because we don't look stupid. And I'm one of the really open people on stage when I'll go, I know you didn't get that. And I can feel it. It's a bit like those people who do Reiki. They can feel an energy drop or a dip literally resonate through their bones. Is that something that you earn? You're reminding me of, I mean, I've worked in the speaking industry for a, a very long time now and have seen you know more than most when it comes to storytelling and and speakers and what it takes to make an impact and I've reached a point with that now 
where I can sit at the back of the room and I can literally feel it. You know, you can feel the audience come forward, you can feel them come back. You can think that point when I'm watching somebody else that I might be coaching, you know, I can feel that that point didn't hit quite right. That that word didn't land. That yeah. that moment you had them, that moment they dropped. There was more energy needed then. You needed to ask them a question to get them to move their bodies. Is that something that just comes with training, a bit, a bit like a conductor where you've just heard something so many times, you develop you, an, a radar for the nuances? But if, I, if you don't have the experience, how would, you, how would you pick up on that? Some of it is learnt behaviour and some of it is just a natural knowing. And if you listen to your knowing and you listen to your gut and you have the awareness of watching people. So I often share that great leaders listen with their eyes. So I'll watch the room very carefully. I'll feel the room very carefully. And there are times where I know I've said something and it hasn't landed well. And I felt there'd be a sharp intake, even though it's non, it, I, I can't even hear it. I can just feel that visible or invisible deep breath, you know, that sigh of, <gasps> and I can't hear it, but I know it's going on with people. And great leaders learn to listen to their gut. There's a there's an amazing um, negotiator called Alan Parker. I've interviewed him for this podcast before. He literally negotiates at a country to country level. You know, he'll have a hundred and something countries in a room, and he's trying to find agreement between all of these countries in sixty odd languages. He's an incredible, incredible brain, and he has a way of languaging what you were just saying. He he talks about it in terms of first position, second position, and third position. And if you are trying to lead either on a one-on-one situation or a one-to-hundreds from the stage, you need to be able to recognize which position you are in. First position is when you are all about yourself. And the way to know that is you can only hear that voice inside your head is the loudest. I'm screwing this up. Oh my goodness, I've just lost them. I don't know what I'm going to say. I'm going to die. So that's first position. Second position is when I'm all about you. And to give the example of this interview where, again, I'm not... I'm not really present. I'm just thinking about what you might be thinking. Oh my goodness, he thinks that's a stupid question or, you know, he's he's checked out, he's bored of this conversation. Whatever my internal dialogue might be, I'm still not present. The third position, which is the position when you get to a level of negotiation where you can literally negotiate between hundreds of countries is when you lift up into helicopter mode. And I'm no longer listening to me. I'm, you know, I'm no longer listening to my dialogue about me. I'm no longer listening to my dialogue about you. And I'm I'm instead hovering above the both of us and going, how is this working? How's the energy between us shifting? Did you just shut down? Did I just feel like I shut down? What do we need here? Do we need to get up and move? Do do I need to ask you a question? Do I need to pull you back? Do I need to get this back on track? You become, you tune your senses into the room as opposed to one individual or yourself. And the answer is yes. You need to be in that position of position four and it becomes a learnt behaviour. And the more you understand that your people need time, they need space, they need clarity, they need clear communication, they need the truth. And when you give them that, they will be on your side. So as a leader, our jobs is to be clear in communication. It's to be in the room, it's to listen to them, it's to be there for them and to have that net, that unknown knowing, if that makes sense, that something's not quite right. And to say to people, I feel there's a block going on here. And great leaders who are vulnerable will say that. And leaders who aren't vulnerable, who think they're right, don't share that. That's where there's problems. Mm. So the most influential people I've ever met are 
have a gravity because you you know they will do that. They'll stop something that seems very urgent to put in something that's important, as in, I feel like we're out of alignment here. We need to start at the beginning again. And it's not always comfortable, but having the, the guts to do that and the certainty to do that. And, and you all know that there are times where you'll be doing a session on stage and I'll just do a break. At no specific time because I just feel there's an energy drop. And I'll ask everyone to get up, go to the toilet, go to the bathroom, go and get a coffee and come back in seven minutes. And he's having the courage to say something's not working. And I'm good at that because <laughs> I offer, you know, much longer than 40 minutes, people are beginning to, to, to get uncomfortable. They're beginning to get to feel a little bit of, you know, they're unease, whatever's going on. Get people moving. Shift the energy. Let's shift. Let's shift quickly to another topic. I want to talk about trust, um, having trust, building trust with a team, being trusted. You you have a a formula for that or a, some framework for that. Can you walk me through that? Well, I'll, I'll I'll make it even easier. Okay, I trust everybody until they let me down. Ninety eight percent of the world want to play the game. And 2% will let you down, doesn't matter whatever you do. The problem is most of us play it the other way around. We think that 98% of the world are going to let us down. Only 2% can be trusted. So providing people have the skills, I trust them to get on with the job. Now, I couldn't do a radio interview with you the other way because I'm not technically skilled enough to know about recording and putting a webcast on a podcast or whatever. So I wouldn't be trustworthy to do it because I don't know enough about it. But I know you're good at this, so I trust you that it will be a phenomenal podcast. If in three years' time I find out that it wasn't great, I'll then make a decision whether I trust Julie Masters. Mm, but there's there's something there about agreeing on the guidelines first, as in, you know. I... But it goes one stage further for me. So imagine I employed you to come and join my company tomorrow, okay? I don't know who you work for at the moment. I don't know how big your business is at the moment. But right now you're doing okay where you are. If you come and join my company, who you don't really know, and you're going to travel all the way to England, and you're going to join a new setup, very often the person who employs that person doesn't trust them until they know them well enough. But you've given up an awful lot to come and work for me. I should be trusting you much more than you trust me. You don't even know if you're going to get paid at the end of the month. So, in bill, well, so you're saying start with start with the assumption. Start with trust as the assumption. Which you know is is just a generally good place to live from. It's a far less stressful place to live from. But you went one step further, I think, in in the book, the Impact Code, which I liked. You said massive rewards, huge consequences, which sounds really harsh, but actually, I think is is a really effective way to look at trust. Okay, well, I'll share another thing. It'll make a bit more sense, I think. So this time last year, I had a brain aneurysm, which is pretty serious stuff. And my surgeon who was going to be working on me, I didn't check her CV. I didn't ask to see her qualifications. I didn't ask to see the last 500 patients she'd worked with. I had to trust her to go into my brain, vomit my groin, to put a coil in, to put a stent in. And this was big stuff, would you agree? Mm-hmm. But at some level, you've got to trust the process. So what point did you decide you trusted her? Because, I, I mean, you would have, there's plenty of surgeons you could have sat in front of where your gut would have said, I'm just not, I'm not feeling it. 
with this person. Let me be really honest. I hated this woman, okay? But I trusted her. And that's what the key difference is. You don't have to like everyone, but you do need to trust them. So I work with a small band of speakers, about four or five, and I trust every one of them. They've stayed in my home. Whether I've been there or not, they've stayed all here. Ironically, I'm going to Jeff Ram to stay with him Friday night because I'm up in the north of England. And when I was ill, he took over all of my work. I didn't know if I was going to get any money. He didn't know if he was going to get paid because I had contracts with people. But we trusted each other. And I work from a place of get to know your team, trust your team, and they might make a mistake. But don't come from a position of liking them, but not trusting them. So I don't like that many people, but I trust them. And there are some people I like and I don't trust. And you rely purely on your gut for that? Yeah, 100%. Because you just reminded me when I had my daughter in the hospital and it was just before she you know, finally came into the world and there was a change of shifts and a nurse came in that I had decided a couple of days before that I didn't like very much. She just, she was very efficient. She was very abrupt, almost bordering on rude. I had no rapport with her. And yet when she came into the room, I was so glad to see her because I trust, I very much trusted her. I didn't like her, but I very much trusted her. There's the point. I mean, if you think about that, this is the scariest moment in your life. You're at your most vulnerable position without getting too graphic here. Okay, literally, you've got to trust this person. Mm. You don't have to like them, but you definitely have to trust them. And that, and the trust, trust comes from your gut. Yeah. And this is where, as a leader, you've got to learn to trust your gut. And you'll get it wrong once or twice a year. But if you get it right 98% of the time, you've got a successful business. The amount of people I've interviewed over the last 20 years, and they go, I knew there was a problem. And I said, well, so why don't you do something about it? And in hindsight, people are saying, I knew we should have got rid of them. I knew it wasn't going to work out. I, I, I absolutely knew there'd be a problem. And sometimes they know there's going to be a problem when they hire people and they still hire them. I think that that's also time. Time. You, you learn to trust. I mean, maybe some people are more talented than me, but I certainly wasn't born with the with the confidence to trust my gut. I think that over time you reach a point and hopefully, you know, with information such as, you know, podcasts and books, you can bypass some of the time that it takes by learning from other people. But when it happens enough time, when your gut's right enough time and you kick yourself enough times, eventually you do hopefully reach a point where you start trusting your gut. Absolutely. On its the first time it talks to you. Yep. So we teach people to have a trust Sorry, a gut diary. A gut diary? Yeah. Now, have you any idea what that is? No, and there's so many things running through my brain right now that aren't helpful. So tell me. <laughs> okay. So imagine that the second you and I decided to do a podcast, we wrote down, did we actually think it was going to happen? Would it be good? And et cetera, et cetera. The very first time we interact on the internet, on the email. Mm-hmm. So I want to tell you what I actually wrote down, okay? You ready? You, you actually wrote something down? Yeah. Okay, tell me. Seems a, she seems a bit nuts, but I love her. <laughs> okay. She seems a bit nuts. Oh, I'm going to take that firmly as a compliment. And, and bear in mind, we hadn't physically spoken when this was done over the internet, mm-hmm. okay? 
And I think my assumption was exactly right. A bit nuts, but I love her. Is there, is there a fair assumption? I, I, would, I would say that that's very fair. And I am going to go back and look at those original emails and just see what gave me away. But you see, here's the point. I do this a lot. And so I'm going to share something that's going to sound a bit weird, especially as a speaker. About five or six times a year, I will double book a major speech. Which is every speaker's nightmare no-no to do. Mm -hmm. You're not allowed to do that. Mm -hmm. But I know that 99% of the time, either the client's going to cancel, they're going to change the date, or I can change the date and do something else. And I don't know where this comes from. It's just an inner knowing, and it's about inner leadership. And I've done it for 20-odd years. And 99% of the year, it always works out. And it means about once a year, I let down a client. And you do that, I mean, are these mistakes that happen that you just decide to see how they're going to play out? Or are these, yeah. or is this a conscious decision to double book yourself? Um, it's a conscious decision because I know there's going to be a problem. They're going to change the date. They haven't got authority, but they've asked if I'll speak. They'll even sometimes sign a contract. And then you just know what's going to happen. You know, I, I know that summer holidays and school holidays, etc. They're going to realise that they haven't thought about it being a school holiday. And I've even told them in advance. So I think, well, I, I can probably change that. And I'll get. And I, if I need to buy my way out of the contract, I will. And 99% of the time, I'm correct in doing it. But you've got to have experience and you've got to have a bit of chutzpah, if that's the right word to use, to know you're going to get away with it. And so you're just to lead, just to go back to this gut diary, just to close that, close that loop there, because it was a, it was an interesting idea. You're saying that if what helps you, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming you correct me. If what helps you start trusting your gut is if you start writing a gut diary and then you check back on it. Every 21 days. Check back every 21 days. And if you start seeing how many times you were right, it's going to give you the confidence that you need to start acting on it. I'll give you an example. I don't know what the weather is in Australia right now, but do you know how many times people leave their houses and it pours down with rain and they go, I knew I should have taken an umbrella. Well, then just start taking an umbrella. You know, deep down, your bones are telling. You know, when you hear people say, I felt it in my bones. Mm. Well, if you feel it in your bones, it's going to rain, take an umbrella. And I think as a parent, especially as a leader of people, I'm still amazed. You know, I had I had a team all over the world and even for people that are no longer on my team, I still have a radar. I can, they'll just pop into my brain and I've learned to trust that as soon as they pop into my brain, I'll send them some kind of a message. You just popped into my mind. I hope you're okay. And nine times out of 10, they will come back and say, it's so interesting. You, you know, I, I hear from you now, this just happened and that message meant a lot. Or, you know, this has just gone on. I have learned to trust my, I call it my radar, you call it gut. Yeah. I've learned to trust that if there's a blip on my radar in relation to somebody, then I follow through on it. But where does that come from? And imagine you've got a team of 30 people. If you learn to listen to your radar, if you learn to listen to your gut, even if you overcommit once every so often and you write to Bob and say, I was just thinking about you, hope everything is okay. Unlikely Bob's going to say, selfish cow, I can't believe she's interfering in my life. <laughs> she's just a bit nuts. Who knows why? She's, she's just, she's it, just right? you know, she's stalking me. She's just a bit nuts. Yeah. But the point is, one out of 30 will think that regardless of what you were doing. And the other 29 out of 30 will think, how cool and how kind is that? So leadership is about 
recognizing that people need to be touched. They need to be nurtured. They need to be cared for. They need to be listened to. And your job as a leader, when things are not going well, is to reach out to them to say, I hear you. I, I care about you and I understand you. When things things are going well, people don't really need this stuff. Mm. And even if you don't have the answers, even if you, you're going to find yourself in an uncomfortable situation where, or conversation where you're not going to have the answers, it, it, it doesn't matter. The risk the result is better than sticking your head into the sand when you can feel something's not right. But you've just said it exactly right. Even when you don't have the answer, just reach out to people. So sometimes I'll ring up a client and say, I was just calling to make sure everything was okay. We spoke three years ago. Just want to make sure everything's okay. I don't know why I'm calling. Just very rarely do people say, I can't believe you've bothered me. Mm. People like to be thought of. And that's your job. Well, I'm going to... I'm going to ask some of my final final questions now. One is, if there's one thing, I mean, we've we've talked about, we've, we've gone all over the place with this interview. I, I had a bunch of points here. We've only covered half of them. Uh, but I, there was a lot in here around how you lead yourself, how you lead other people, how you um, how you make an impact, especially when things aren't great, when things are breaking. If there's one thing. If somebody sat listening to this podcast and they're in their car and they're on the way to work and they know the kind of day that they're facing or they they know the situation that they're facing, if there's one thing you would get them to do, one thing that makes the biggest impact, what would it be? Write them a short note of appreciation. Write a short note of appreciation. Yeah. To who? To one or two of your team who you haven't reached out to for some time just to let them know that you love them. And would that apply to clients as well? Yep. I probably write to three of my clients every single week just to say, I saw an article, I saw something, thought you might be interested, you should listen to this. I send them a book, I send them a bar of chocolate, I send them some great animal stuff just by reaching out. And I, and one of the things I love about in the, do you remember the old days when you would send a text message to somebody? The old days? I, I, I communicate well, mainly through text. Okay, well, so one of the reasons I love sending a text message is you can't hear them, them, them respond to you. So you send them a text message, just letting you know, I was thinking about you today, love our interaction last week. They get the message themselves as against you ringing them because when they get a text message, they're slightly shocked. And I like shocking people to success. I like shocking people for acknowledgement, just so they can't acknowledge me back. See, often when we ring someone to acknowledge them, we want acknowledgement back. Yeah, we're, we're hoping See, for I, a response. Yeah, and I'm, I like sending people a text message to say, I love you. That's all. Hmm. You know, there's a, this will probably make you laugh, there's a term for this now. There's a, in this digital world, there's a, it's called dark social. And they're, they're starting to call dark social basically any communication that you do that is outside of a social platform, as in it's one-to-one and nobody else can see it. So yeah. either a text message, an email, basically I saw this, I thought of you, I thought you might enjoy it, or I'm just thinking of you, or I enjoyed, whatever it is. And for, for those of you out there who need science as opposed to, as opposed to gut feel, 
they've proven now that dark social, reaching out to people via dark social is four times more effective at engagement and relationship building and four times more likely to get a response than any other form of communication. But part of that is because it's done one-to-one at a soul level. And when you communicate at a soul level, it's very different to posting, putting something on Twitter so you're letting the rest of the world know you're thinking about somebody. If it was that important, you don't need to do it. Mm. But also, as you said, you're not expecting a response. It's literally a reach out without agenda. Yeah. And when you do that, life changes for you. So what's having the biggest what's having the biggest influence on you right now in terms of your message, where you're going, what you're creating? I think the biggest influence and the biggest joy that I get is watching an audience taking on board the message and just doing that to their own teams. So I have a lot of things called hashtag 42. So no meeting should last longer than 42 minutes. And I love seeing an email from a client six months later going, we've actually cut it back from 42 minutes to 30 minutes and we're doing it more often. And I love how you've classified us in the animals and we've now buying everyone a zookeeper hat. And they actually do something with it, but they take it on board themselves. So it looks like they've made it up themselves. I like them getting the credit for doing what they've heard. Because that phrase is when all is said and done, much more is said than done. And when they actually do something with what's been said, I get a kick out of that. So for anybody listening, if any part of our conversation ignites some action in you, which I hope, I hope that it does, then Nigel is very, very much open to you reaching out to him and letting him know what. And, and, and plagiarising what we've shared. The more people that do this stuff, the better the world gets. What is it they say? Creativity is great, but plagiarism is faster. Exactly right. Or steal with pride. I don't care. Whichever one you want to do. Well, Nigel, it's got to be nearly midnight in, on London time right now, and I, I very much appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much. It's been fantastic and I wish you every success and I look forward to coming on your radio show and having another nut session in about a year's time. <laughs> I'll try to be less nuts on a first impression by then. Thanks so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this episode and found tons and tons of useful ideas and insights for growing your own influence. Now, for those of you who want to take the next step in your influence journey, you want to take everything you have learned today and just ramp it up an itch or you just want to learn more about the power of thought leadership when it comes to growing a business an enterprise or spreading an idea there is now also a research paper that you can download from my website juliemasters.com pop in your email address it is free we will not spam you but it is jam-packed full of all the ideas tools and case studies that i have come across in 10 years of doing this work called the influencer code it's not long but it is full of value so download it keep it share it juice it for all it is worth i hope that it makes a massive difference in your career or business thank you always to our producer co-founder and the main brain i'm not joking behind the inside influence podcast lauren kelly in the words of jerry mcguire you complete me And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. 
And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an interview.